Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. It's the big enchilada event all around me at COP28 in Dubai for political leaders, heads of state, chief executives of big business and environmental NGOs. A staggering 100,000 delegates are milling around a sprawling campus officially designated as UN territory in a corner of the Gulf. So much of the talk leading up to COP and during the first week here has been about the controversy surrounding the host, the UAE, and the COP president himself, Sultan Al-Jaber, the CEO of the country's main oil and gas company. When it emerged that he had said there was no science behind ending fossil fuels in order to limit the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, it confirmed many climate campaigners' worst fears, and he quickly changed his tune. And let me just clarify where I stand on the science. I hope this time it gets picked up. Because I've, what I'm saying today, you have access to all of my public engagements, it's there. I'm not going to say anything new. It's the science and my respect to the science and my passion about the science and it's about my conviction to the science that have enabled me to progress in my career. Well, intriguingly, that clarification came only a couple of hours after my conversation with the man he probably listens to more than anyone else here, and that's John Kerry, the US's special presidential envoy for climate. And Secretary Kerry had a few things to say to me about that. We all have to be part of hitting this goal of keeping the Earth's temperature limit to 1.5 degrees. You know, maybe there'll be a clarification, I don't know. But I do know that the COP president's position is that we have to achieve 1.5 degrees. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's interview podcast, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic. John Kerry has been lauding America's efforts to pull the rest of the world towards that elusive goal of limiting global temperature rise by that 1.5 degrees, despite being a considerable oil and gas guzzler. Let's hear my conversation with Secretary Kerry. Secretary Kerry, welcome to Power Play. I love your setting, outdoors, blue sky. I was going to say, I'd like to think that this is our setting. Is it a bit of Dubai sun and trees around us? You've got a good story to tell at COP this year on what you've set out to achieve. We hear lots of quite positive announcements as we go through the COP process. But isn't the problem that a lot of these ambitious commitments are voluntary? And how are you going to ensure that the big oil and gas producers' feet are held to the fire, so to speak? Well, we have to hold everybody accountable. I mean, there's just no... uh, I don't believe that in today's world there's any escape for anybody from responsibility without shaming, without amazing scrutiny and accountability, which is going to come through social media, through countries, through transparency. I mean, the fact is that today we have satellite capacity to trace leaks of methane. 
we have satellite capacity to be able, and we are looking at the footprint of the carbon footprint of big companies in various countries. So, look, you know, citizens, everybody has to stay alert and focus in on what a country is and isn't doing. But truthfully, I see more ambition being put on the table, more effort is being put on the table. Is it enough? No, it's not. And we particularly need more from the oil and gas companies, which obviously bear the fundamental responsibility for the burning of fossil fuel that in unmitigated form goes up in the atmosphere and creates the problem in the first place. Yes, that has to happen. But a whole bunch of other things have to happen. Citizens need to use, start to make choices that uh, respond to the demand, changing the demand curve of fossil fuel. As the world's largest oil and gas producing nation, can the US really persuade others to step up on the kind of commitments that you're talking about there, particularly on fossil fuels, when your message is very strongly here at COP that that needs to happen? There's a bit of argument about exactly what that means and phasing out and what that would look like. But can I just ask the rather blunt question, is the US the best ambassador for this message, given that the Biden administration is presiding over an expansion in oil and gas production? Yeah, but the oil and gas production it's presiding over is going mostly to Europe and to other places where there's a huge demand because Russia cut the gas. So we are very much geared to have a completely carbon-free power sector by 2035. That is the president's goal. By 2030, we want a 50% reduction. And we are now, the 90% of the new electricity coming online in the United States is coming from renewables. So we want that to build out faster. The Inflation Reduction Act that the president passed is having a profound impact in accelerating this transition. And what the science tells us, this is science-based. This is not political. We're not sitting around saying, you know, the politics of this. In fact, 85% of the money being distributed in the United States from the Inflation Reduction Act is going to Republican congressional districts. So there's no politics in this. What we're doing is listening to the science. The science tells us that we have to reduce emissions by a minimum of 43% by 2030 and by 50% by 2050 net zero. That's the focus. And that's what we are. We have a plan to do that. Our emissions are going down. Not fast enough. We have to speed that up. But we do have a plan and we are legitimately leveraging the maximum behavior commensurate with that plan. Talking about the science can sometimes be something of a third rail here at this COP summit and we've heard uh, the COP president Sultan al-Jabba say that a fossil fuel phase-out is not in line with the science and he claims would send progress backwards to the cave. Has he said anything like that in conversations with you? What I believe he was saying and, and it's legitimate for people to have questions about that but what he's saying is the science itself is not definitive. It doesn't say to you, oh, you have to do it this way or that way. It simply says you have to do it. Now, we do have to phase it. I mean, we took the position in the United States that we need to phase out unabated fossil fuel, and we need to do that immediately. We need to move to do that. But how do you do that? Well, you have to close coal-fired power plants. We're doing that. We have very few left now in the United States. We've closed about 500 coal-fired power plants. And we are going to close the rest of them in order to have that carbon-free footprint by 2050. Wasn't it at least unfortunate to hear the COP president saying, or sounding like he 
didn't particularly want to engage with fossil fuel reduction very seriously. Look, he's got to decide how he wants to phrase it. But the bottom line is this cop needs to be committed to phasing out all unabated fossil fuel. That means we cannot allow the emissions to be going up for sure. Now, he supports that position that I just articulated. I know that. What I think he was saying, and maybe it came out the wrong way, I don't know. I think he was saying that the science doesn't dictate the methodology that you have to use. You have to choose between many different ways of doing it. Maybe it happens through carbon capture. But it isn't happening here in UAE, is it? Because there there is a a large amount of expansion. They need to cut and everybody needs to be reducing, but we need to reduce supply and demand. And demand is what's pushing the supply right now. People want to get in their car and use it. People want to go to the market, whatever. We all have to be part of hitting this goal of keeping the Earth's temperature limit to 1.5 degrees. You know, maybe there'll be a clarification. I don't know. But I do know that the COP president's position is that we have to achieve 1.5 degrees. And he has said and that would you again advi- and would again. Would you ad- advise a clarification in, in his case and this remark? Well, I don't. It's not my job to, you know, be giving advice or advising one thing or the other. Uh, I think over a period of time, I heard him definitively say in his opening comments to the entire COP that he is committed to 1.5 degrees and that we need to do all the things necessary to implement that. I think what he was saying, and I, it's not up to me to speak for him, but I think he was saying the science doesn't say do this or do that or do this. It says you have to achieve this goal. And the goal is a minimum of a 43% reduction by 2030 and a net zero goal by 2050. How you get there is up to you. Certainly by getting rid of subsidies, that would be all diminishing. Right. The subsidies are crazy. And we have them still in the United States. President Biden has said, we've got to get rid of these subsidies. But again, you have to get, you know, you have to legislate to do that. And we've been uh, pretty gridlocked in our country for a period of time. You guessed my next question. I think you might have even done this kind of interview before. You're going into an election campaign in the US. There is going to be pressure to keep gas prices down to assuage motorists. My US uh, colleague, Jonathan Martin, puts this question, are you going to have to put climate purity on the hood to keep prices down during the election? The President of the United States does not control, nor does the Congress of the United States control, uh, what the basic price of oil is going to be. That's a supply and demand, production versus sales challenge. And, um, you know, I think the marketplace is the marketplace. And That's one of the reasons why production is where it is now, because the demand is there. It's always volatile. It's always a challenge in politics. So I can't predict to you where that's going to go or where it's going to be. I can just tell you that the president is doing everything he can to help the citizens of the United States, who are his direct responsibility, to be able to have affordable everything. But our economy right now is moving. It's very strong. Uh, job growth is very high. By the way, the greater part of that job growth is in renewable energy, much more than in, in the old, uh, you know, in fossil fuel or otherwise. But this is going to be a very bruising election campaign. What election isn't nowadays? 
you don't think this one is going to be a particularly difficult one? We have the looks like likely return of Donald Trump. There are lots of questions still, uh, perhaps over among Democrats well, not, about, I'm, I'm about not, President yeah. Biden, both his you know, his age and ability to sustain the campaign, particularly in this very bifurcated and fraught American sort of atmosphere in the country in election year. Look, I'm not allowed, because I'm under the hatch act, to get involved in a campaign and start advocating one candidate or criticizing another. Uh, So I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm just going to say to you that uh, we'll get through it, all of us around the world. And I think people will uh, make their judgments about the candidates based on their character, based on their competency, based on their records. And uh, I work for the President of the United States, who I find is uh, energized and focused and making all the critical decisions necessary, which is why he's got the best legislative record of any President of the United States since Lyndon Johnson. And I think as the American people focus on his leadership in Ukraine and elsewhere, uh, they'll know what to kind of keep in mind as they go into the stations. Let me try to sort of put that in a way that isn't, as you say, doesn't you know, make it too difficult for you, you to answer. You've got this a long-standing commitment on the environment, on the climate, and but both. You have been doing so for many decades. You're with a serving with an octogenarian president. I think you get that honour next week yourself. Pre-congratulations on that. But do you think that this is the end in one sense of one generation taking on the climate challenge and that these roles will have to start to pass to new generations? Well, I think they already have been. I mean, mean, you look at the folks who have been the most vocal, the most organized, the most active, the most uh, militant. You're looking at the younger generation and that's normal. And I welcome it. I think that the Leadership of young folks on this issue has been absolutely incredible. It's vital. It has kicked a lot of adults into higher gear and got them to do the things that adults are supposed to do. So uh, the sad commentary on everybody's politics is that it's taking a younger generation to try to hold the older generation accountable to its promises and to its obligations. I suppose you're a good sign that it is also cross-generational. Would you envisage carrying Oh, no, on? I think this is very much cross-generation. Uh, I mean, I'm not, as long as this is a crisis, I will be organizing and speaking and active in dealing with this How challenge. long do you envisage carrying on in this I have room? no idea. Maybe, you know, in one role or another, I have no idea. I intend to be a citizen until my last breath. And by that I mean there are obligations of citizenship, obligations of responsibility and of speaking out and of fighting for values. Uh, So I think one should never turn one's back on that public obligation. Republican delegation rolls into town this week. Are you worried that the the rhetoric will end up being divided into something, to put it crudely, like a a culture war around dealing with the challenges? No, no. I'm really, uh, I look forward to meeting with the congressional delegation. And I've had very respectful uh, meetings with them previously, with their chair and others. And I think, you know, they have legitimate points of view about some ways to try to come at this problem. Not everybody has to attack it the same way. But the language that they're using is on renewable energy to substitute fossil fuels and start lowering emissions this decade. I mean, that... Is that the basis of a possible compromise here at COP? I'd have to talk to them and see exactly what they're proposing. But the bottom line is that we have to do things because it's crisis and life itself is at stake. 
there are serious challenges right now. So because it's an existential issue, I hope people will drop the party labels and come together around good common sense solutions. I think people do know that about you, but it, it would be possible under a Republican presidency that your role would stop existing. Is that something that worries them? The role, whether or not you, you know, it was you or someone else as a, an envoy. Let's worry the- about the future when, as that arrives. Uh, uh, you know. China, you've had a very long history of good personal relationships with your Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. He's retiring. How do you think that will affect that climate dialogue, given the background well, it'll, of it'll, uh, relationship? He's been, he's been a terrific partner, and uh, I've known him for a long time. He's a man of his word. He's very thoughtful about this issue. And we have been able to build not just a working relationship, but a good friendship over the years. I'm sorry to see him. He stated he, he is going to retire. Uh, it will take a little while to build up the kind of 25-year relationship we have, but uh, but I'm sure people will do that and we'll go forward. What did you learn about China and its approach to this issue by that long relationship? I was thinking in the wake of Henry Kissinger's death about the value of those very long, very sort of textured relationships as well as the transactional dialogue that happens at, at COP and beyond. And it, you must have had a, a very interesting relationship with him and I wondered how it changed your view of China's approach if it did. No, it didn't. Honestly, we, we um, I've had a good sense of China's approach because I was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and I was Secretary of State and worked with uh, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi very closely on a number of issues and I think you know we managed to differ at times but differ respectfully and, and on substance and never with personal animus. And you think you can actually move China forward? And what would you? What would your big well, I ask be? I didn't say that. I hope that we can find. Uh, I hope we can find a common ground. We just had a very important four-day meeting session, a negotiating session in Sunnylands in Palm Springs in California. Uh, we came up with uh, understandings of how we wanted to go forward together. That's now common knowledge here. It's helped change the outlook for the future of accelerating reduction of emissions. And um, both of us are very pleased that we were able to find that kind of progress. And what about your European allies? We often talk a lot about China. We talk a lot about UAE. Do we look enough, and I'm speaking as you probably hear, the audience might be able to tell, vaguely British accent. If we look at what's happening with the return to oil and gas exploration, Rishi Sunak has has announced an extension of that. I think that's been to the disappointment of of some climate activists. Germany is keeping coal going because the war in Ukraine has obviously changed that argument about energy dependency. Europeans are in danger of zigzagging, not stepping up? No, I think Europe actually has been in the lead for quite some time now, uh, doing a a great job of setting the example and helping to define the policy. I worry a little bit that in various places around the world, there's too much business as usual. There's not enough concentrated effort to all help each other with this transition. The war, uh, both that and the Middle East uh, and COVID have all taken a toll on our ability to just be focused on this in the way that we ought to be. But uh, we can't go back. Nobody should be going backwards. Uh, We must meet the Paris goals. We've got to be honest about the global stock take here and really lay out the road ahead. But I believe we can make progress, and I think you will see emissions come down over these next few years. 
before I let you go, I am going to ask you a question we put to a lot of our guests as, as they leave us on the Power Play podcast. Who would you like to hear? We'd love to have you as a, a listener, you and, and your team. Who would you like to hear us uh, put in the hot seat where you've been kind enough to join us today in Dubai? You want me to I basically want destroy you to do all my relationships by putting somebody on the hot seat and then they'll curse me for the rest of my life. I can't do that. That'd be insane. Someone you'd like to hear from. I hope it's not been that grueling an experience. Oh, no, I'd, like to hear, I'd like to hear from uh, one of our global premier musicians as to how they kind of keep on being creative and moving forward with uh, hope and in the midst of all this okay, chaos that, that we, That's about. doable? Who would you like oh, to sing along to? Know. Tap who, a foot to? I'm uh, dangerously antiquated in that regard. I'm a 1960s, 70s guy, so, you know, get Paul McCartney or Elton John or, uh, you know, uh, any of these guys, Bruce Springsteen, we'd have a great time. You are definitely more than hired as a booker for Power thank you. Play. Thank well, you. I didn't get them. I just put them <laughs> on the high seat. Secretary Kerry, thank you very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Coming up on Power Play, I'll be speaking to Politico's climate and energy reporter, Zach Coleman, one of our team here, following every move. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Welcome back to Power Play and to take stock of my conversation with John Kerry, I'm joined by Zach Coleman, who is climate and energy reporter at Politico out of Washington, D.C. newsroom. He's here with me in the heart of the blue zone in Dubai. Zach, John Kerry's been involved in this world for decades. What struck you about his conversation and his general tone? I mean, he's pretty hopeful, it seems, that the world is trending in the right direction. And for someone who has been a part of these conversations and these conferences since they began in the early 90s to see the trajectory here in what could be his final cop we don't really know you know open the kimono on what his future plans are but you can see that he thinks that he's leaving the world in a better place but still we have so much to do because we haven't addressed climate change when we could have to make this challenge a little easier for us we're now behind the eight ball and i think he recognizes that it was quite a diplomatic rebuff that he gave me when I asked him about uh, Sultan Al-Jaber and his comments about the science of phasing out fossil fuels. What did you make of the way John Kerry approached that? It was a bit of an eclat here in, at COP, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, Sultan Al-Jaber was certainly defensive in and of itself on Monday when he was asked to address those comments. And I think what John Kerry was trying to say is, you know, it doesn't really matter how you get to the emissions reductions. I think that that's what he was sort of putting in Sultan Al-Jaber's mouth, that he maybe meant, you know, there's no science that this is the only way to get to 1.5 C, that you must get rid of all the fossil fuels. And I I think that that's a charitable interpretation of what Sultan Al-Jaber might have been saying. I mean, that because we know that the clearest scientific way is to get rid of fossil fuels and to stop using them. So I think to say that there might have been some other way to view that there's no science that says fossil fuels need to go. Uh, you know, I, there is no way to view it other than that was wrong. And what did you make of John Kerry's insistence that subsidies in the US and elsewhere had to go? I was struck by his damn right. I mean, you really feel he almost sort of jumped out of his skin at that point. It's something that clearly matters to him a lot. Yeah, and and this is something that Democrats in the United States have been pushing for a while, that the United States heavily favors oil and gas companies and, and fossil fuel companies in the tax code. And this is something that President Biden has focused on. But we know there's a political challenge in the United States to change the federal tax code and to remove these subsidies. So it's something that Democrats can reliably message on and can really lean into, but there's also very little consequence for them because it's politically difficult to imagine stripping the tax code of these subsidies. He was also interesting on China and his personal relationship with his counterpart who is retiring. China's still key here, isn't it? But a lot of people who've slightly lost the plot on how this is working in terms of addressing climate when so much else is wrong in the relationship with the U.S. Yeah, I mean, he has had a deep and long relationship with Xia Shenhua. I mean, it's been 25-some years where the two have worked together. It's hard to imagine him being able to have the same rapport with whoever else would replace Xia. So when you think about all the other tension between U.S. and China, climate has really been one bright spot. And I think a lot of that rests on the relationship that Kerry has with his counterpart. So whoever it is who steps in for Shia, it's going to be very clear that Kerry doesn't have the same dynamic with that person. And even he said it will take some time to build that. Whether it's going to be John Kerry building that, that's less certain. I thought there was a bit of a slap on the wrist, Zach, implicitly for European countries continuing to explore oil and gas, whether it's the UK or Germany, in different ways. But same sort of idea and that seemed to be something that he thought was not getting the memo about how quickly this needs to be actioned. Yeah I mean this is a complicated thing in the world right we still use oil and gas and in fact the U.S. produces more of it than any other country so John Kerry could also put the lens on our own administration in the U.S. to to say we are also not doing the right things by the climate science and and you know that's not going to be popular for him to say, so he'll focus the blame elsewhere. But, I mean, it's also true that the U.S. has a problem on this regard. You mentioned the fact that John Kerry has been in this role and similar ones for a very long time. 
Do you think that if Joe Biden is re-elected, he's likely to stay in it? He gave quite a sort of elusive answer to me, in a way. He said he would remain committed as a citizen. I did get the impression that he sees this as part of his legacy, his life's work. He's still very vital. He doesn't come across as, you know, some people might say, well, he's a near-octogenarian, what are they still doing doing this? You don't feel that, I think, talking to John Kerry. Do you think he wants to stay in the role? He seems like the type of person who is, if, he, if he's not doing something important in public service, that he would be very bored, right? So I think there's a chance he could stay on. But I think the fact that Xia, his counterpart in China, is retiring might make it more difficult to keep that relationship going. And when you talk about having to build something up with someone in China, he, he might see that maybe it's time to pass the torch and let someone else have that consequential relationship with the biggest emitter in the world, which is China, and, and maybe start a new chapter for the U.S. and China going forward. An easy one for us to end on, Zach, or possibly not. Where do you see this COP28 going? And what do you think we'll be talking about as we move through the many stages and negotiations to what comes out of it? Well, one of the central conversation topics here at COP is what do we do about fossil fuels? How do we get beyond them? How do we use less of them? And I think one of the main tensions here is we're hosting that conversation in the United Arab Emirates, in the Middle East, with the president of the COP being the president of the UAE's national oil company. So it is this this major contradiction, but at the same time, it will be instructive for how the world can move beyond fossil fuels if you can start to see countries that depend so heavily on them actually being engaged in that conversation and moving towards progress. But we won't really see where that ends until we see the final text. Zach, thanks so much for being with me. We cut a break out here in the sun, didn't we? I know you all can't see this, but it's a very colorful, looks like a bunch of cables wrapped around a building, and it's just this enormous rainbow building. I don't quite understand why it exists. It's so very Dubai. Many thanks to Zach there, and do be sure to join me next week for another edition of Powerplay with interviews and analysis from Taiwan heading towards a crucial election. And if you'd like to get in touch with me or any of our team about what you've heard on our podcasts, or indeed John Kerry's musical tastes, email us at powerplay at politico.eu. The producer here in Dubai is Peter Snowden, and from Washington, D.C., the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Do join us next week for another edition of Powerplay. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.